I want you guys to turn over your announcements to your notes today. We're going to talk about the sermon, Why Am I Here? Can you look at your neighbor and say, Why am I here? Now, hopefully you came this morning for church. That's why you're here. Um, If you're here for another reason other than church, we'll pray for you at the end of church, okay? And when we started this series, it was called The Big Questions of Life. What are the things that really matter to us the most? Well, the first type of question we ask ourselves is, who am I? You know, who am I? And we talked about last week that it, it sounds simple at first. We say our name, and this is where we come from. We say, well, I'm Joe, and I come from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and these are my parents. But then we begin to say, well, where did they come from? And then where did they come from? And then now you get into a question that's kind of complicated. Where did mankind come from? Well, last week, as you can find free on our sermon player at the website, we realized that we're creations of God. I gave you three proofs to show you that we couldn't be the uh, creation of evolution, mindless chance over millions and billions of years. The three proofs that I gave you was the proof of first cause, the cosmological argument that everything in the natural world has a cause. And so, therefore, what caused the universe what bang the big bang it was god it couldn't have been nothing exploding nothing are you with me and this is all in review the second thing that we learn as a proof from god is the teleological argument that is the proof from design if you were to see a watch on a beach you wouldn't think that the sand had evolved over the millions and billions of years into a ticking watch you would pick it up and look at the back and say it's a watch that's been created by a watchmaker and when you look at the mount rushmore and the faces there of our founding fathers you don't think that that came over wind and rained over millions of years somebody designed that and when we look at the dna structure of the man and the and the woman the the eye the brain the ear the things that we have we notice that we are designed somebody say i'm made in god's image And then the third thing that we learn is the argument from morals. Some people say we just developed right from wrong over a matter of time from herd instinct. And so what we do is we just act as a herd. And so we found out that eating our children is not good because they can't take care of us when we get older. And so we've evolved into caring for our children. And I guess at one time we were cavemen and we would beat our husband or husbands would beat their wives over the head and bring them home. And we found out through a herd instinct that that wasn't true. Well, that's what evolution says but how do you know the difference between right and wrong instincts there's an instinct that you may have to hurt somebody and an instinct to help somebody how do you choose right from wrong well there is an instinct right and wrong detector on the inside of you called your conscience and that cannot be explained through evolution so who are you you are a spirit with a soul living in a body a creation of god born a sinner under the wrath of god and loved by god meant to be born again can you say amen Now look at your neighbor and say, that's just a review. Now what we're talking about today is why am I here? Why did God create you? Why did God make you in His image, spirit, soul, and body? Why did He allow us to be here even though we have sinned? And why did He care so much for us to redeem us, to give us a hope and a future salvation? That's what today's message is. Turn with me to Psalms 139.1. Psalms 139 is one of the most encouraging psalms you will ever read if you doubt the... uh, the uniqueness of who you are or how special you are to God. So remember this scripture that any time in life you just feel a little down and out and you just need encouragement, I want you to go to Psalms 139 and read it out loud to yourself, especially in a modern version, so you can understand it. 
Now, I asked some people on Facebook, what do they think their purpose is? I have about 1,400 friends, and I asked for my non-Christian friends to respond to this question. Why am I here? Now, here's one of my friends uh, that I used to know growing up. This is what he says. My life's purpose is self-preservation and further propagation of our species. Beer factors into that equation somehow as well. Now, we know that's kind of silly, but that's what a young adult, my peer, actually believes. See, that sounds like an evolutionary thought, doesn't it? He says, I'm here just to propagate my species, make babies, try to take care of them, so that the human race will continue. Someone else put it just very simply, to be better. So their purpose in life, according to them, is just to be better. Others knew that I was looking for what their purpose was before Christ, because I know once we get to Jesus, it gets to be pretty clear. So... Somebody said, before I was a Christian, my life's purpose was to better myself for my own happiness. So people were living for their own happiness. Now, I want you to think about if I was to go around this room and I was to say, what is the most important thing to you besides God? So we're not being spiritual and religious, and we're just asking a general question to bystanders out there. Let's say that we're not going to bring God into the conversation. What is the most important thing? How many think most people would say, why I'm here is to take care of my family? Most people would say that. Good people would say that, right? I'm here for my family. So I want everybody to stand up with me. This is Holy Ghost Aerobics. Come on, welcome to church. Stand up. And I want to ask you a question because this is something that I get so often when I go out preaching. I want you to think about if you're not living for God above your family and really family first and what family is to you is the sole purpose of why you're here. I want you to think about this. Let's consider you the first generation. Here you are. Now, if you know the names of your mom and dad, I want you to stay standing. If you don't know the full names of your mom and dad, I want you to sit down. Okay, so most people here know their mom and dad. Now, if you know the names of your grandma and grandpa on both sides, full names, that means you're going to know four full names right now of grandma and grandpa. Keep standing. If you don't, please sit down. Okay. Now, if you know the names of eight full names right now, that is going to be each one of your grandma and grandpa's moms and dads. That's going to be eight full names. If you know it, would you please stay standing? If not, would you sit down? Wow. So we have some people that can go back. Can you go to the next generation? You can't go to 32? Thank you, my brother. You are a brilliant man. I want you to think about this example. What does it prove? is that we forget even about our own families. People who are living right now saying, oh, I just want to take care of my family. That is the number one reason why I'm here. Do you know that within three generations, you'll be forgotten? You will be forgotten. They don't even know who you are. Do you know who was the fastest runner in this neighborhood? Do we know who was the richest person a hundred years ago? Maybe Rockefellers, you can name one. How about 500 years ago? Do we know the greatest artists of the third century, the fourth century? My friends, when we look at human history, even the most important things we say like family, we don't even remember who they are, and they're all forgotten. Why am I telling you that today? Because you have to have a purpose in life that goes beyond just today and your family. And I'm not trying to say family's not important. As a matter of fact, I think family's very important, but I don't think it's the most important. 
Matter of fact, what I want to propose to you today as the most important thing in life is to, number one, know God. Now, I believe that knowing God will make you the best moms and dads on the planet. And if somebody's not a good mom and dad, they use God as an excuse. They're just a bum. Look at your neighbor and say they're just a bum. So I'm not saying let's use God as an excuse not to be good moms and dads. I'm just saying if all you say is your purpose is to be a good mom and dad, you're not going to have much purpose after a few hundred years after you're long gone. There's no more purpose. And if you were here last week, your soul lives on. Your spirit lives on. So here now we get the question of not just philosophy, we get the question of theology. What is the purpose of God in us? Well, once we get into that question, all the religions of the world want to line up and give you their presentation. Here we are, you know. So I'm going to give you the Christian presentation. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, he's going to teach me something. I'm going to tell you why I believe Jesus and Christianity's view of God answers the question of why you're here better than Islam, which I've studied, better than Hinduism, been to India twice, better than Eastern philosophy, have also studied, and better than any other animist tradition or any atheistic tradition. Here's the reason why I believe Jesus in Christianity gives us the God emphasis of life and why today we should be reading our Bible instead of Reader's Digest. If you want to listen, can you say, I'm going to listen? Here it is, number one, historical accuracy. Historical accuracy. Why do we go to the Bible about God instead of the Bhagavad Gita that they use in India? Instead of what my uh, heritage, Italy, the Greek and Roman gods. Why do we go to the Bible? Well, because it's historically accurate. When you compare it to uh, Greek paganism and the stories of Hinduism, which are very similar, why they call them the uh, Indo-European people, because they have similar backgrounds, these gods and stories aren't grounded in history, meaning you're not going to find a lotus plant coming out of somebody's belly button and making us all another universe. And that's how India and and the people of Hinduism say we first came from the lotus tree. You're not going to find Mount Olympus up there wrestling around with uh, in Mount Olympus you're not going to find Zeus and Hercules wrestling around with other gods. When you look to the Bible, you see historical accuracy. Some people laugh when they read about Noah's Ark, but they don't study it really in in a thorough way. When you study Noah's Ark, Noah's Ark is a legitimate ship that could hold two of each kind of animals. It could survive a hurricane. It could survive. We have built models of these, and we have tested them. The Ark could survive. Then we talk about the flood itself. Where did the water come from? The Bible doesn't say the majority of the water came from the air. It says the majority of the water came from the depths of the earth. Some may say fault lines. And the fault lines show that this earth was once majority land, but then it became majority water. And that's why we find oysters the size of cars on top of Mount Everest because of the fault lines opening up, water coming without, and spreading out the land and making high mountain ranges that used to be flat ground. Are you listening to me? Noah's Ark is accurate. It explains where we came from. Do you know that when people study the culture of mankind and our languages, do you know that our languages and our modern civilizations only go back to about 5,000 B.C., the oldest language, the oldest civilization? Hey, guess what? That was right at the time when Noah was coming out of the Ark. Do you know that when we do population growth charts and we figure out, like, if we were at this population and then we multiplied over these years and these years and these years, well, at two 
2010, we would have 6 billion people. So you reverse it back. Doesn't, do you, have you ever studied this? I don't know if you have, but I can help you out. You go all the way back. That's when it says the beginning was. Right around 5,000 uh, B.C. Right around that time, we believe Noah's Ark. So it's grounded in history. The walls of Jericho. How many have ever heard that story? That Joshua and the people of Israel marched around the walls of Jericho. They let out a trumpet sound. And what happened to the walls of Jericho? They fell down. Do you know that archaeology was started in the 1800s to disprove Christianity, but actually archaeology has become a great science and and benefit to Christianity itself because we have found places like the Jericho walls that have tumbled in, not going backwards as if a person had hit them down from an enemy, but they have also fallen forward and they have fallen into the earth. This is archaeological facts. The Bible is grounded in fact. The Bible is not grounded in mythology. The Bible is historically accurate. And then we look at the life of biblical characters. There was a group of people in the Bible called the Hittites. Everybody say the Hittites. And these archaeologists in the 1800s, they set out to disprove the Bible, and they laughed at us. They said, man, you guys are talking about the Hittites. We don't see any of the Hittite people in the records. We can see some of these other people, but we know that this is a made-up name. These people have never existed. Do you know that in the early 1900s, they excavated the people known as the Hittites, and the only record they had beside the one that they were holding in their hand from archaeological evidence was the Bible that talked about these people and then the biblical characters they used to mock us and say joseph if he was in egypt he would have had his name written somewhere we can't find any of his records now they have believed to find joseph's name in the annals of egyptian history these things that you find in the bible are not based in myth they're historically accurate and the more we study the more evidence we have that's the first reason for christianity the second one is fulfilled prophecy everybody say prophecy Now, if God is really speaking to his people, wouldn't God know the future? Wouldn't God know future events? And do you know, not including including Nostradamus, there is not one book that has more fulfilled prophecy than your Bible, which you are holding in your hands right now. As a matter of fact, it has so much prophecy that people began to do what they call redaction criticism. Some may say redaction criticism. Yes, I have been to Bible college. Hallelujah. Redaction criticism means these people go back in time. They read the book of Jeremiah that predicts the Babylonian captivity around 500 B.C. And they say Jeremiah depicts it so true. Jeremiah must have wrote this after it happened and then tried to trick people as if he wrote it before it happened. And then we begin to study history and we find out that would have been impossible because of the evidence that Jeremiah wrote it beforehand. Because of the evidence of the manuscripts and we see that those who try to explain it away can't deal with the fact that God actually told them they would be in captivity the next thing is the coming of Jesus do you know that there's 48 major prophecies about Jesus himself yes there's a lot of people today that claim they're God there was a church on Fullerton with the dude with the big old belly named Adi Da and he was born in the 50s and he claims to be Jesus Christ he just recently died okay so I guess he's not much of of a Jesus, but they still have a big picture of him and mm, do their meditation. So you might say, well, anybody could claim to be Jesus. We know what Jesus did. 
He fulfilled 48 ancient prophecies that all the way go back to the time of Moses in the book of Genesis that he would come from Bethlehem, that he would be the son of David, that he would be alive during the time of the second temple, that he would have friends that would betray him, how he would die. The Psalms describe that he would die by being crucified and that he would be pierced. 48 prophecies. Everybody say, that's a lot. Now, one man from Moody has a mathematical degree. He wanted to find out the chances of any one of us fulfilling just 10 of those 48 prophecies. Not all 48, but just 10. And he worked out the math equation. And this is what it would be like. The largest state in America, the state of Texas, filled with quarters all the way up to your waist. So can you imagine? It's a whole lot of quarters all over Texas, up to your waist, and only one being painted red. And you have one chance to out of all those quarters, the red, that's the chance of someone fulfilling just 10 of Jesus's 48 prophecies. Can you say that's awesome? The next thing that we see is that while Jesus was on earth, Jesus was asked to look at the Jewish temple. And when he looked at it, he said, guys, don't be so impressed with this. The times are coming when the Jewish temple will be torn down. Not one stone will be left upon another. The people of Israel will have to run in that day. And then later on, he says, but they will come back. The olive shoot will grow, and this will be a sign to everyone. And so what he predicted was in his lifetime that the, the temple of Jerusalem would be destroyed, Jewish people would be dispersed, and they would come back. Do you know that Jesus was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, 33 A.D.? By 70 A.D., the emperor Tiberius invaded Jerusalem, tore the Jerusalem temple, knocked it down, scattered the Jewish people all over the earth. They were scattered until 1946, and then 1948, they claimed back Jerusalem and became a nation. The first people group to ever be dispersed from their land from that long to come back and still have their heritage. The nation of Israel is a prophecy. And Jesus also said in the end times, everybody's eyes would be upon the Gaza Strip in Palestine. And isn't that where everything is at right now? It's in the Middle East. And it will not be peace until the Prince of Peace comes. But he gave that prophecy. And it's already happening, baby. Come on. I'm excited. Are you excited? The third thing that I want to present Christianity to you as the answer of why we're here is the life and work of Jesus. Now, people have said that Zoe Asher and all these other people have come, Mithra, and have told their stories about how they heal and do miracles. How is Jesus any different? I mean, really, if I told you when I was in the bathtub by myself, I walked on water, how would you really know? So, you know, isn't Jesus' claims the same? Absolutely not. The life and work of Jesus is not the same as that. Number one, he has the Gospels that attest to his miracles written at four different times. And the one John who tells the most about Jesus, they actually thought was written in the second century, hundreds of years after Jesus. But we have our oldest manuscript, P76, which is a piece of credit card size of John that actually goes to around 70 AD. We found out that the one that talks the most about the miracles is actually one of the oldest manuscripts that we have. And now some people say, well, don't some of the Gospels contradict each other? No. It's like having a quantiphonic stereo sound system, each one accenting a different part of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. These disciples not only claim that they saw Jesus do miracles, they claim that Jesus himself raised from the dead. So now you have a claim that none of us have seen. How do we believe that type of audacious claim? As one man said, that spectacular claims need spectacular evidences. And so what is that spectacular evidence? Number one, 
When Jesus raised from the dead, he saw over 500 people. And when he went to heaven, these people began to get arrested by the Roman government, not just because they had a religion, not just because they had a Bible. No, because they claimed to have seen the living Lord Jesus Christ. And those men were martyred, and they never contradicted their story and never took it back and never said, we made it up. They died. Peter upside down. Thomas was speared. Remember, guys, Thomas who touched him said, I won't believe until I touch and see it. He was speared to death in India. These men gave their lives for Jesus because they knew that they had seen the resurrected Lord. And the first disciples of the disciples, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, and Polycarp, who knew John and Paul personally, they said that these men believed it unto their martyr death. And John was exiled. Are you listening to me? And then lastly, today, we sense his presence and power when we call upon his name. You don't see demons cast out in any other name. You don't see the sick healed in any other name. And right now, I'm not just talking Christianity. I'm talking tongue, talking, baptizing the Holy Ghost. Christianity grows eight times faster than the rate of birth around the world. In China alone, right now, there are 1,300 Chinese Christians getting filled with the Holy Ghost and saved every hour because the gospel is spreading around the world in power. There are churches over a 100,000 in multiple nations. Some may say that gives me a lot to consider. Are you ready to learn Jesus' answer to why you are here? See, because I just didn't want to come and give you a few scriptures. I wanted you to know before I went into the Bible why I use the Bible. This is why I use the Bible, friends. Are you ready? Let's get into the message. Now look at your neighbors. That was a nice introduction. Praise the Lord. Psalms 139. Why am I here? You're going to love this. I'm going to read it uninterrupted. The whole passage from the Message Bible. God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me and you're there. Then up ahead and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful. I can't take it all in. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Then I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark, and at night I'm immersed in the light. It's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. Oh, yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I even lived one day. Your thoughts, how rare, 
How beautiful. God, I'll never comprehend them. I couldn't even begin to count them any more than I could count the sand of the sea. Oh, let me rise in the morning and live always with you. Somebody say, God loves me. The sentence I want you to focus on today is all the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I even lived one day. The God we're talking about today says he knows everything about you. He already knows your end. He knew you would be born before your parents even had a twinkle in their eye, put on Al Green, Art Kelly, or Barry Manilow, whatever they listened to. He knew you would be born, and he knows the end of your days. And every day you're alive, there is a page in his book written for you. So the question that you need to ask to God is, God, why am I here? What did you create me for? And so today, just briefly, I want to go through the scriptures and give you some godly principles that you can base your life on, on what God has said to you. Can you say amen? Amen. The first thing I want you to see is Mark 12, 28 through 31, that you are here to know and love God. So you want to know your greatest purpose in life according to your creator, according to the one who knows you inside and out. Do you want to know what he said your greatest purpose is? It's not the job you have. It's not just the family you take care of. It's not the house you live in, the education you have. The most important thing he has for you to do here is to know and love him. Doesn't that change things right now for some of you? Because you've been so focused on other things. I want to encourage you today. Focus on who God is. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. This is the time of Jesus. He heard some debating going on. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So he's basically saying, God, which is the most important commandment? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. Everybody say, love the Lord your God. Thank you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the second like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandments than these. The first thing that I want to encourage you with today is to love God with all your heart. That means with your emotions. To love God with all your mind, that means your thinking abilities. God's not asking to brainwash you and make you a robot. Sir Isaac Newton, who is the father of physics, wrote more about the Bible than he did about math. God is the most interesting subject to study. He's the best of friends. He's the greatest person to write and sing about. He's the greatest motivator in life. So love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything you do for God. Somebody say, love God. Now, here's where the karaoke ends today, because I want you to use your Bibles with me and look up these five scriptures as I begin to read off some of the ways that you can start today by loving God. How can you love God? Here I am as a pastor. My job is to make the, the Bible understandable. Here are some points that I would say, this is how you can love God. Starting in John chapter 3, verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Everybody say born again. 
The first thing you have to do is be born again. You have an earthly father and mother that gave you earthly flesh and blood. The Bible says God is a spirit, so you need to have a spiritual birth. My physical birth was January 19th, 1997. I look like my mom and dad. My spiritual birth was November 5th, 1995, and now I look like my heavenly father. You see, you're not just a body. You are a spirit and a spiritual being with a soul. Jesus says the way you enter into a relationship with him is to be born again. Now, if you have his Twitter or Facebook, you can try it that way, okay? But there is no other way. You have to come by the Spirit and everybody say, be born again. Now, I didn't say be baptized. I didn't say go to church, sing in the choir. I meant born again. That's what Jesus meant. You have to live another life, and that starts with being forgiven. And John 3.3 leads us into John 3.16, the most famous scripture of the Bible. If you know it by heart, say with me, one, two, three. For God so loved that whosoever believeth in him, everlasting life. So how is a person born again? As you continue in that passage, they're born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, and it's clarified also in the book of Acts, with repentance. You're repenting for the things you've done against God's law. You're believing in Him, and you're asking for a spiritual rebirth. Because remember, I can make a mental ascension and say, I believe in Abraham Lincoln. But that doesn't make me born again in Abraham Lincoln's spirit. That would be kind of crazy, wouldn't it? So when the Bible says, says believe in him it's not just saying i believe in jesus i've done that inoculation flu shot i got jesus no it's actually being born again in the spirit and now having a connection to who god is it's not a religion it's a relationship and it's every day walking and talking with your savior jesus and it gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by amen The second thing that you'll want to do is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Everybody say, Shikaboomba. That is our way of just saying, be filled with God's Spirit. We don't only believe that the Holy Spirit is there to regenerate you. We believe that the Holy Spirit is to empower you. We are the kind that raise hands and dance in church and lay hands on people. We're not ashamed of the power of God. It's the power of God that has set people free. There was a young lady in our church that's saved now and loving Jesus, who in the middle of a preacher preaching stopped his message, told the girl all about herself, and that Jesus... Jesus knew everything she was doing. Because of that, she wept and repented and accepted Jesus. We believe in miracles. We've seen people come into church, shake, rattle, and roll, and get demons cast out of them. That is part of the Christian life. And you might say, I don't know if that shows God I love him. Yes, it does, because he said, go into all the world, preach the gospel. Those who speak with new tongues, lay hands on the sick, are uh, uh, drinking serpents, poison, and not hurting them, and they go out and preach the word everywhere. He says, I work with them. Mark chapter 16. God is looking for a church that does more than just say the gospel. He wants them to live and display the gospel. Say, I'm not just to say it. I'm supposed to display it. Amen. Don't take my word for it. Take the master's word. Acts 1.8. Jesus said, but you will receive power. And the Greek word for power there is dunamis, explosive power. When the Holy Ghost comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the earth. Somebody say, I've got the power. 
God is looking for people with the power of the Holy Ghost who He can fill. And we believe the initial sign of that is speaking in heavenly languages. Because I don't think up in heaven God is going, Hey Gabriel, what's going on? And I don't think He speaks in Chinese. There are heavenly languages. And so when the Bible says the Holy Ghost comes on you, and you start speaking out in other languages, it is known unto God, and the power flows through you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says nine spiritual gifts begin to operate in you. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, gifts of miracles, gifts of faith, gifts of healing, tongues and interpretation, and the gift of prophecy. Somebody say, I want it. The Bible says eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And so today, to love God, get saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost and power. And He'll set your life on fire. That's what it's talking about there. Not going to church on Sunday. Amen. A little bit more than that. Turn with me now to Romans 12, 1 through 2. Because you can be tongue-talking, water-walking, but be living like the devil. You can be a hypocrite. We see a pastor right now on TV being accused of a homosexual relationship with young men. So my friends, it's not just how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you get out of church. It's not how loud you shout. It's how quiet you live your life in holiness. It's about living right for God. So this pastor here today is not just looking for another televangelism ministry. I'm looking for the integrity of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Being saved means you're living out your salvation every day. Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Somebody say, holy and pleasing to God. The Bible says this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed. Everybody say transformed. Somebody say metamorphosized. The Greek word for transformed is the word metamorpho, where we get the idea of a caterpillar being metamorphosized into a butterfly. You came in here slithering like a little caterpillar, but when Jesus got on the inside of you... You fly like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. No, but you, you become something beautiful in the presence of God. We see this in the movie Transformers. Oh, it's a truck. No, it's not Optimus Prime. There he is. God is transforming you into His image. That's what the Bible says. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Point to your mind right now and say, I got to get rid of stinking thinking. You see, God wants to get rid of your stinking thinking, translates you from being a caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly. Then the Bible says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's not an excuse just to say, nobody's perfect. You know, I could say to my wife on the day we got married, honey... Nobody's perfect in marriage. Do you think she would still marry me? If she knew I was planning on having a girlfriend on the side, nobody's perfect. What would you do if today I showed up here and said, Hey guys, I just drank a six pack of beer and I was out all night, but hey, nobody's perfect. Hand me the mic, let me preach now, okay? Because nobody's perfect. 
You know, it's like we pull that little card. I hate nobody's perfect. Let me tell you something. God wants you to be perfect. God wants you to know His perfect will. And guess what? When we mess up, there's something called forgiveness and grace. And it's not just grace when you sin. It's grace not to sin. That means in the time of temptation, we can say, God, transform me from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Get rid of this thinking, thinking, so I can live for you. And He'll do it. He'll change you. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm changing. Amen. Number four, how you can love God is in the next following verses. Be committed to fruitful service in the body of Christ. Do you know that we show we love God when we serve each other in Jesus' name? And I'm not just talking about what I do for 45 minutes on Sunday. I'm talking each one of us can serve the Lord. It's not just preaching in a church. The times that you feed the needy, you clothe the naked. The times that you open your house up to hospitality. The times that you share your lunch with your neighbor, give them a ride to work. The times that you raise your children in the fear and admonition of God. You're doing it all unto the Lord. And the Bible says when you do that, He looks at you and says, oh, look, angels, they love me. You see, when we serve and obey God, he sees it as love back to him. Just like moms and dads see when they have a clean room in the children's house, they see that as love. Amen. Romans 12, 3 and onward. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to, but with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Look at your neighbor and say, don't be cocky. Come on, don't get stuck up. Don't think you're better than everybody else. Look at verse 4. Just as each one of us is one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts according to the grace giving us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach if it's encouraging do you know that just looking at somebody going hey you're doing good is a gift from god and you show god you love him so let's look at your neighbor pat him on back and say you did good coming today come on thank you if it's encouraging let him uh, encourage if it's contributing to the needs of others let him give generously if it's in leadership let him govern uh, diligently if it's showing mercy let him do it cheerfully do you know that just letting somebody off the hook saying it's okay i forgive you is showing god you love him you might say man they don't deserve it they no but you're showing god you love him when you let other people off the hook and do things in mercy when you encourage each other serve each other lead give generously the bible says you're doing this all out of a love for him john 14 15 jesus said if you love me you'll keep my commandments and lastly go to john 14 15 what i just said somebody say amen hallelujah praise god if you're excited to be in church somebody say i'm excited hallelujah we'll keep you up in sunday mornings john 14 15 Already in my heart and there on the slide. Now you might say, Pastor, what do I do the rest of my life? So many things I have to do. Well, you know what? God has a plan and a will for you in all your days of your life. Remember, He wrote the pages of your life out. He already has thoughts for you. If you were to go and count God's thoughts for you, it would be like going to a beach and counting all the grains of sand. That means God has an endless amount of thoughts to prosper you, to bless you, to help you be a mother, a father, to be faithful on your job. All of these thoughts in the pages of your life are waiting to be discussed. Discovered as you have a relationship with him. John 14, 15, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will obey what I command. 
So the question may be, well, pastor, what job do I get to love God? Well, you pray and then you obey what he commands. Well, pastor, I don't know who to marry and who to start my family with. You pray, God will speak to you, then obey his commands. God has will and commands for each one of us. Now, somebody might be thinking to himself, man, commands? I don't really like those, pastor. But I want you to think about how much you like commands when you're in an airplane and the pilot pushes engines start. How many like the command? then the command center how many are happy that when he says plane landing gear come out you're glad that the landing gear obeys the command and command central hello have you ever been on a plane when the landing gear didn't come out my wife and i were in a plane normal plane and and it's not landing we see it circling the airport and all of a sudden you know this is a bad sign the pilot comes out with a wrench in his hand Walking down the aisle, lifting up the middle of the aisle, cranking on something right there. Yes. And then I had the, like the stupidity to ask him what he was doing. It would just would have been better for me not to know what he was doing. Excuse me, good sir, what are you doing? The landing gear won't come down. I'm cranking it down right now. I was saying, obey, obey landing gear, obey. Obey the command of the nice pilot, please. Nancy said she's never seen my face turn so white when he told me he was cranking down the landing gear. My friends, we have people here that work with computers. Computer programmers make things work on commands. When you hit enter, that sends a command to the hard drive. Commands are a good thing to make things work in life. When you want to have the purpose God has for you, as you're doing all of these things generally, God then specifically will start giving you the commands of your life to how to live, to where to live, to who to live with, how to live with them. All of those things come directly from God to you. Can you say, He loves me? And then looking at the next thing that the Bible says, he said, you are to love people. So the greatest purposes we have on this life is to love God and love people. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. And here's the way we love people. And of course, the first people we're going to love is our family. Can you say amen? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, gives us a very strong warning to those who do not take care of their children and do not take care of their family. We live in a society today where we've aborted over 40 million children in abortion clinics. This is murder in God's mind. We live in a time today where now for the first time more people are growing up without their biological parents than who are growing up with their biological parents. We live in broken homes today. Young people are suffering from divorce and all of the tragedies that follow from these wrong decisions in life. I want to encourage you today to take care of your family. First Timothy 5 verse 8 says it this way, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So there is no excuse in God's kingdom, being a born-again believer, not to provide for our children. And I'm not saying children, that means you get a PlayStation 3, Nike Air Jordans, and you get to go to Disney World every other month. I'm talking if you got some bread and water and some cloth on your back and a place to lay your head, you're blessed. Amen? And anything more than you get from that, from your parents, you should be hand clapping, washing the table, washing the floor, doing whatever you got to do. And all the parents said, Amen. So children, if you got more than two sets of clothes, you are super duper blessed. Amen. If you got to actually pick out what you eat every day, you are really blessed. 
Because when he talks about us providing, it's just to give him the food and clothes and the nurturing and the love. It's not this materialistic world that we live in today that tells us parents if we don't have all the do-diddles, we're not good parents. Because all the people who have do-diddles are empty and dry. I would rather have Jesus living in an Indian hut with six of my family and relatives and us all know who we are, why we're here, loving each other, than to live out in the suburbs in a five-bedroom house with three people and to be lonely and be busted and disgusted. Are you listening? It's not about what you own. It's what you have in your heart. And he says, take care of your family. Now, the next thing that comes right after that is the family of God. Go to Matthew chapter 25. You see, why does God call the church his children? Why does he call it his body? Why does he have us refer to each other as brothers and sisters? Because this is our extended family. That God not only wants you to reach out and care for the person in your house, but he wants you to reach out and to care for the people in this house. Some may say God's got a big house. God's got a big house, and in my Father's house, there's room for all of us. And you might say, Pastor, I couldn't bring everybody here to my house. No, but you can become a leader, small group leader, and you can take a small group into your house. You might say, Pastor, I can't go out and buy everybody lunch. No, but you might be able to help out somebody one day with some lunch. You may not be able to do it for everybody, but you might be able to do it for somebody. Amen? And he's looking for you to care for others. And I believe that this church has done it so well whether it's in our missionary group, our after-school program, English as a second language, or our adopt-a-block on Chicago's west side. We are reaching out, showing that we love the people of God, not just our own families. Amen? Because it's not us four and no more. Amen? We're looking for a greater family. In Matthew chapter 25, if you start from verse 31 to verse 46, it talks about Jesus coming down one day and dividing the nations as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he's going to say to his sheep these statements right here. And I don't have time to read every one of them, but I want you to see what Jesus is going to say to his sheep starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. This is Jesus talking. He says, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Jesus was locked up. Yeah, keep going. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes? and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Verse 40. Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for who? You did for who? Me. Jesus says that when we take care of the homeless, we do it as unto God. When we take care of the hurting, we do it unto God. You know, when I ministered in New Orleans, I brought in over 30 homeless people into my house. And the first time the Lord told me to do it, it was very sketchy and very scary. I was out ministering to ghetto, and God said, I need you to start bringing in the homeless. I said, okay, God, tell me when to start. He said, start with this guy right here. Total stranger to me. Now, by the way, don't do this unless God tells you. Amen. Total stranger. God 
guy on crack. God tells me to go up to him. He's all, you know, tweaking out. Hey, man, you want to stay at my house? He thought I was kidding. Seriously, he thought I was kidding. And I was like, no, really, you look pretty, you know, strung out. You look like you need some help. I want to bring you into my house. Can I help you? The dude's like, sure, man, come on. He came into my house, slept on my bedroom floor. Do you know what I did? I went to the kitchen, got the butcher knife, put it underneath my bed, and I slept with one eye open. And I said, dear Lord, I love him, but I don't know how much yet. If it gets out of hand, Lord, will you forgive me? I brought in homeless people into my house. Why? Because God wanted to teach me. I was born and raised in a suburb. I was one of those kids, three, a mom, dad, and son, living in one of those big houses with more rooms than you had to have kids in. I had a car at the age of 16, and what God wanted to do was teach me is you've got to love the lowly. You've got to love the people that are hurting. Don't make life all about you. And I thank God from those lessons that I've learned loving homeless people because now I can love each and every one of you and not look at your bank account or the car that you drive. I can see past all that and just see you as a person. That needs to be loved because God taught a pastor to reach out to homeless people. Can you say amen? Praise God for that. Amen. And so in each one of your lives, it may not be taking off that guy hobbling down the road today on Irving Park with the sign. You may not be inviting him into your house, but you know what you can do? You can tell him Jesus loves him, give him our card, and we'll help him out. You can talk to the person at school, young person that nobody else wants to be friends with. The coworkers, you can do it with your friends. You can have a way of reaching out. And if you're just saying, Pastor, I don't know how to do it, well, then show up Saturday when we go and minister to the kids in Ohio Park with games and activities because there's not a lot of good in that community, but God is changing them. Can you say amen? And la- uh, third, to love and preach to the lost. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. If you're still with me, say, I'm here, Pastor. Somebody say, preach it. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Not only gives me the call to preach, but it gives you the call to preach. Because if you love people, you'll tell them about Jesus. Let me ask you a question. If somebody you knew right now had the flu and they needed to get the shot or go get medication, would you tell them about where they could go? Would you bring them to Walgreens? If somebody you knew right now had a a sickness and all they needed was a little bit of that antibiotic and you just had to get it for them, would you help them out? My friends, people right now, if they don't have Jesus, will suffer for eternity in a devil hell prepared for his angels the bible says the sacrifice was already paid for them all you have to do is preach to them the good news amen and sometimes they won't see it as good news they may get kind of angry with you but that's okay love them anyway and just look at your neighbor say they don't know no better They don't know no better. How many of you got saved the first time somebody preached to you? I know I didn't. It took me a long time. Amen. As a matter of fact, the day that I got saved was the same day I cussed out my mom. And she said, that's the last time I'm taking one of his calls. But you know what? The next call was, Mama, would you pray for me? You see, sometimes they get so bad before they get better. Don't give up preaching to your relatives, your friends, and your family. Keep telling them about the cure. Keep inviting them onto the ark of the cross that will save them from the coming storm. Amen? 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, here's what Paul said. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Somebody say compelled. Compelled to preach. He said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He said, man, I'm not feeling good. I feel bad if I don't tell somebody. I've got to let the world know about Jesus. Would you stand to your feet with me today? The last thing is to love and serve the world through your talents and job. Look with me to First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. You might say, Pastor, why did you even have to put that one up there? Somebody look at your neighbor and say, i got to work. Now, I know most of us here, we love to work. Most men, when you don't have a job, you don't feel right. I know the hardest time of my life when I was unemployed. Band, would you come, please? But the reason why I put it for last is because today so many of us start with that. If I asked you what is your purpose, you would say, oh, it's my job. And if you think about it, you spend so many hours there. But look at what Peter said as the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, he should do it. Oh, excuse me, start in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Somebody say, God's grace in its various forms if anyone speaks he should do it as one speaking the very words of God does anybody have a job where you have to talk does anybody talk on their job okay or is mum the word does anybody talk the Bible says talk as if God was speaking through you your order is ready sir ooh God is speaking but speak as if God was speaking through you that you're a Christian and God is in you. He's not itty bitty Jesus. He's God in you. So when you speak, it's as if God was speaking. And if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Does anybody have a job where you have to serve and do something with your body? Okay. The rest of you are not talking and doing things with your bodies. I would like to know what type of jobs you have. I, I don't know, I don't. I haven't been in the employment world for a while, but I thought that everything would come down to talking and doing something with your body. Okay, maybe you're not very active today in the questions, but let's keep going. Do it with the strength of God. Some of you might have to get up at four in the morning. Do it with the strength of God. Amen, he's excited. Right here, not to embarrass him, but Ricardo Rivera, Chicago's finest, Chicago police officer, uh, what time do you get off? What time did you get off this morning? Oh, he's on. What time would you normally get off? He would get off at four thirty in the morning, and he comes every week. How does he do it? By the strength of God. His wife right here is a nurse, and you're probably on vacation too. But what time do you get off when you have to work? She gets off Sunday morning at eight thirty. And she still comes and serves. Can we bless the Lord for this couple up here? Amen. Praise God. What God is saying is whether you're talking or whether you're serving, do it all unto Him. So there's our jobs. It's all unto Him. I remember watching a show, Undercover Boss, and he is in charge of waste management. And he went and watched the people picking up the garbage. And he was saying how impressed he was with those who did it well, with smiles. And he gave them raises. Because even those who are in waste management can find a way to do it as unto God. All that you do is for the Lord. 
Now today I want to ask you that question in closing. The same question that I started off with today. Why are you here? What have you made your life about? This is what I believe God wants your life to be about. I believe He wants you to love Him. And I believe He wants you to love others. I believe the way you're going to do that best is to get saved, set on fire, keep His commands, and go out there and serve and preach to people. He wants you to love your family. He wants you to provide for them. He wants you to have a fruitful life. He wants you to work hard and see something at the end of the day, a reward for your labor. But you got to put Him first. As we pray today, I'm just going to ask that each one of us, even as a pastor, do you know that I can pastor and not even do it for God? I can start doing it for the wrong reasons. That all of us, whether we're mothers, fathers, bakers, and candlestick makers, will do it for God today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank You today for this awesome congregation and for the love of the Word that they have, God. They came here, God, to hear Your Word being preached and to be shown the truth. Now, God, I pray that it becomes true to each one of our lives. That today, no matter where we are in our journey, that today, God, we'll make a decision to serve and to love You.